another Dishcast in this lovely, humid July. And this week, I am delighted to invite my old friend and former colleague and sparring partner and, uh, and friend, I'd like to say, for many years, Peter Beinart, uh, is one of the select crew of masochists who were editors of The New Republic at some point um, in the past, and uh, also writes now has a substack, the Peter Beinart Notebook, the Beinart Notebook. Please check it out. Um, he's also the editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, uh, which is a pretty left-wing magazine for the Jews. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, Something like that. Um, and obviously, Peter has a long history of being very much engaged um, with the questions of Jewish identity in America and the fate of Israel and its, uh, and its policies. And we go back a long way, and Peter's also shifted over the years in ways that I'm curious to, to prod and probe. He's also strangely ageless. Uh, he looks <laughs> he looks roughly not he, uh, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> he looks roughly as he did when I first saw him when he walked into the New Republic offices. Um when I think he was still at Oxford at that point. Were you? Uh and, and around that, or maybe I had just I had just just left or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You weren't very old yourself. I was, you know, they they selected me at the end of my career. Um uh, I'm just kidding. Um, I want to, uh, what I do with this to start off with, Peter, is to ask people to kind of talk about their upbringing, where they were born, who their folks are, what were their influences, what did you want to be when you were that kid? Um, tell us, where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the heartland, sorry, I sometimes call it. Um, um, so my parents arrived in the United States when, from South Africa when my mother was pregnant with me. And um, my father was very happy to come uh, from the kind of Jewish shtetl of apartheid South Africa to the deracinated kind of intellectual life of Cambridge, Massachusetts. He wanted to get the heck out of there. Um, for him, it was partly because he was opposed to apartheid and had gotten close enough to get himself in real trouble. Um, but a lot of it was also just that he saw it as suffocatingly parochial, South Africa under apartheid, the Jewish community in South Africa apartheid. Uh, he, he wanted the big leagues. He wanted the cosmopolitan world of, you know, my mother um, was much younger than him and they were just recently married. Um, she thought they were going for a trip, you know, that they'd see the world for a little while. She'd go back to the bosom, you know, the kind of bosom-like warm Jewish community that she had always grown up with on the beach. And I think gradually, you know, came to realize that um, they had conflicting ideas about what was going to happen. Um, so it was in some ways funny because, I mean, I think I, I probably share this with a lot of maybe children of immigrants, is that my parents were here in the United States, but much of their world was back in South Africa. And we actually also went there a lot because my mother was so homesick. Um, uh, her father helped us and we would go there almost every year. So I think that I was, um, became interested in American politics with South African politics very much always looming in the background, especially when by the mid 1980s, when I was a teenager, the state of emergency broke out in South Africa alongside the global anti-apartheid movement. So those were just 
constant topics of conversation, you know, in, in my family. The politics of South Africa were omni, were always present. The politics of Israel became quite present as well, we started, especially starting with the first intifada in the late 80s. My father was doing a fair amount of work in Israel. Um, and then I think the other element was that um, that was also very much present for me was that um, my father is a, I was, my, my late father died last fall, I think was very much a universalist. Um, um, although, you know, deep, you know, he's been up in a Jewish environment, but I think he, 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 he wanted, he wanted, he, he nationally thought about breaking out of boundaries and thought about the moral problems of being inside of, of communities with rigid boundaries. Uh, and he thought they were boring and, and, uh, uh, often ugly. My mother was always most comfortable right at the heart of the center. And I, I remember of those communities. And I remember once very clearly, my grandfather never really spent been in the United States at all. He came to visit us and um, he walked to a apartment building in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a Jewish suburb. And um, he said, I think I would live there. Very, I could think I could live here very happily. And I'm thinking, he doesn't know a soul in this building. It's freezing cold. He lives on the beach. What is he talking about? And I see he's reading the names of the people in this building and he says, I know all of these people, you know? So I, I think that that tension between, again, I'm, I'm parodying both of them because they're both more complicated than that. Of course. Tribalism and universalism, particularly, which I think is very deep, that tension is very deep within Judaism itself, was very much in my own home. And and also in your own brain, right? I mean, that 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 these are two competing values that you've struggled with and wrestled with uh, for much of your life. Yes. And I mean, I'm interested in hearing how it plays out differently for you as someone who's wrestled with uh, being a Catholic, who's often, you know, and I know how much that means to you, um, who's often very much at odds uh, with the church and um, uh, on many, many things. But I, I think that so the, the our version of this is is particularly refracted through the idea of peoplehood, you know, in a way which makes it somewhat different for a Christian or a Muslim, perhaps. But um, yeah, I always found myself from very early age, schizophrenically, deeply pulled towards the extremely tribal and the extremely universalistic at the same time. And a lot of it, and some of that came from the fact that many of my fondest memories growing up, because we were alone in America, we had no relatives. Shabbat dinner in our family was just the four of us in the cold. And then we would go back to South Africa and it was like, there was everybody, you know, everybody was there, all of our relatives, you know, and, and I was surrounded by, you know, just this, all of this love and community and family. And so I associated many, and my sister too, many of our happiest and fondest moments with this place, which was inextricably linked to utter evil, right? you know, apartheid, right? Not, not ambiguous at all, right? And the two things could not entirely be disentwined, you know, and so I think those were the, mm. the roots of a lot of the things that I've remained interested in. And it's interesting, the, the South African Jewish community, of course, were incredibly important in sustaining the campaign against apartheid. Um, and my, it's apartheid, right? It's not apartheid. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, 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 was I using an Africana? No, 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 oh. no, 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 no,
Mm. But but in some ways, because of that, I mean, you're, the 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 liberal Jewish community in South Africa were 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 actually very universalistic in this much they had disproportionate mm. power. Okay, debunk that. That's a that's a. I a myth wish. In my head. I wish. I wish I could say I thought that was true. I think that the the truth is is this. I've always often been fascinated by this. Joe, Joe Slovo is one of the figures that I've always been most fascinated in my life. For those of you who don't know, I think one of the most extraordinary Jewish lives of the 20th century, a guy born in Lithuania, only speaks only Yiddish, I think, until the age of 11, becomes the head of the South African Communist Party and of the ANC military wing in Konti Wasizwe. So he is... After Mandela, I'm perhaps the second most powerful member of the ANC, and such a hardliner that when the ANC gives up armed struggle, they literally ask him to go and explain it. By the way, also such an unreconstructed Stalinist that he defends the Tiananmen Massacre, which wasn't one of, wow. uh, one of his better moments. His wife was blown up in a, in a assassinated by the South African government. He used to, in Lusaka, Zambia, in the, in the, in the, while, while organizing military plans, and he got stressed, reported that he would go out by himself and read Yiddish literature. So, like, for me, this was partly like, you know, no, no American Jew played as powerful a role in our black freedom struggle as he did in South Africa. But to go to your question, because I, I can ramble on this, I think that the harsh reality is that although Jews were definitely overrepresented in the anti-apartheid struggle, by which I really mean the ANC, uh, all the, the whites who were, uh, uh, who were prosecuted alongside Mandela, for instance, um, in the famous uh, uh, Ravonia trial, where all, where all the whites were all Jews. They were a very unusual group of Jews. They were um, communists, and they were, they were basically people who were really at odds with the mainstream Jewish community. The mainstream Jewish community was afraid of them and embarrassed by them and wanted nothing to do with them because the mainstream Jewish community felt that the Afrikaners were anti-Semites just under the surface. They had basically been pro-Nazi during World War II because they were anti-British. And they had made this devil's bargain with South African Jews, where South African Jews got to be white. And of course, they had a very close relationship with Israel, the South African government. But there was always this fear that if you were tainted by the Joe Slobes of the world, that you would be seen as disloyal and the, the Afrikaners would turn on you. And so that logic, which was essentially to say, listen, we can't have a dog in this fight. The Afrikaners and the Blacks are having this struggle. We're just passing through here, after all. Our only loyalties are to Israel. We have the, the, one, of the, one of the most important books about South African Jews is not called The Jews of South Africa, The Jews in South Africa. It's like, we're just passing through, not really our place. And basically, we want to stay out of this, but also live in our, with our in, immense privilege that comes from being white. And so the reality is that although now post-apartheid, people in the Jewish community have adopted people like Slovo and Ronnie Casarils and, you know, Gil Marcus and all these people. In reality, most of the people were just going along to get along. And the South African rabbis, the people who actually spoke out against apartheid, were generally shipped out of the country pretty fast. Fascinating. And of course, that was also the relationship with Israel must have been another particularly stressful uh, situation because the South African government back then was quite close with the Israeli government and certainly with their, as I understand it, their nuclear program uh, oh, yes. was was hand in glove with the Israelis. And of course, you know, then the, the analogies of, of Israel and South Africa have not exactly ended over the years um, and seem to have intensified. Yes, absolutely. No, there's a terrific book on this by uh, uh, another a guy of South African heritage, uh, a journalist named Sasha Pulakow Saransky, you may have come across, and he, he writes about the South Africa-Israel relationship. And what's so provocative about his writing is that he argues that it was not merely 
a relationship of convenience in which South Africa and Israel, and actually Taiwan, who is funnily part of this in some ways as well, as these pariah countries, you know, globbed onto one another. And basically, South Africans shipped Israel uranium, and Israel gave Israel, South Africa the technology to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, but he argues much more, much more disturbingly that there was this real ideological um, uh, con- connection, especially with revisionist Zionists once they gave came into power. They saw themselves as similar settler colonial societies um, on a hostile frontier trying to maintain, you know, keep the natives basically, are, uh, you know, um, under control. And um, we know, I mean, there has been reporting, for instance, that Ariel Sharon was very taken with the idea of the what were called Bantu stands, the, the homelands in which Black South Africans were basically said, this is, you now have an independent country of some wasteland out in a rural area. Um, and now we don't have to worry about you anymore because you're citizens of another country. And that as Israel was fragmenting and taking control of the West Bank, that this was an idea that he found quite attractive. An Israeli journalist named Akiva Eldar has written about that. Yes, and it, it, it looks as if it's it's working out according to the according to plan at this point, right? I mean, uh, yes, in some ways you can argue that Israel Israel has been. I mean, there are obviously there are differences. There there are significant differences between the two political systems that we could get into. But you could argue that Israel has proven it's much proved much more durable uh, in in Israel-Palestine than, than in South Africa for various reasons. So you were brought up really with these ideas and these arguments in your head from the get-go. Um, it's like you never had a nice period in which you could just be a normal boy and, and uh, have your, your life outside of these grand struggles. And then you go obviously to to Yale and then to Oxford. Um, and uh-huh. then in that pipeline of, of very bright young Jewish guys, you show up at the New Republic. Now, obviously at that point, the New Republic was, I mean, obviously it was also a thoroughly heterodox place in, in, in many ways, even though, but the one thing that we were not heterodox about um, uh-huh. was Israel. And right. you, you, were, you, you struck me as absolutely, you were very yeah. much in the, Sort of neocon, not neocon, but liberal internationalist, two-state solution, Jewish intellectual that saw yourself, and I'm thinking particularly of the Fighting Faith book and and your yeah. own yeah. Uh, yeah. acknowledgement of Iraq and how that yeah. changed your thinking. Now, yeah. obviously, I, I, it changed my thinking too, yeah, in ways that were painful to acknowledge. But you were still. Yeah. In 2006, still basically yeah. arguing for liberal internationalism, uh, liberal interventionism to some extent, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you were still invoking the tradition of the Cold War liberals, really, as your mm-hmm. as your inheritance, and that is obviously now light years from where you've, you've, you 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 yeah. you're now you're now actually advocating the other side of the Cold yes. War. So that's yes. that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a huge. Uh, it's not so much a. Uh, yeah. uh, it, it, it's a big. It's an. I know it. it we're talking about 14, 15, yeah. 15 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, talk me through some of that. When was when was the first yeah. moment of? Because, I mean, I was out of the Iraq thing, yeah. two thousand mid 2003 four essentially and i was yeah yeah uh, but you you hung on as did many others i'm thinking mm-hmm. like people like mm-hmm. paul berman or uh, leon weaseltier mm-hmm. and obviously mm-hmm. marty mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. krauthammer and all the rest of it never yeah. really dropped even hitchens even crystal and kagan they were mm-hmm. all still mm-hmm. 
promoting this this idea. Yeah. So what was the first thing that kind of hit you that you may have to really rethink where you had been? What was the, was there a, a particular moment? Can you remember a particular moment or was it, did it creep up on you? I actually, in some ways, my second book, which is called The Icarus Syndrome, uh, which is a subtitle, The History of American Hubris, was really actually an effort for me to really, to work through a lot of these things. So, so it was a, it was about the American entrance into World War One and Vietnam and Iraq. And one of the things that in some ways comforted me and perhaps became a model for me in writing that book was was looking at previous people, you know, intellectuals, if that's maybe that's too fancy a word, people who had really changed their mind in some pretty profound ways, you know, over the course of their lives. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr was 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 one in particular, um, um, but others, um, Walter Lippmann. Um, I think that I, um, I, you know, it's interesting. I think that what happened was that um, I, I was pretty on the left when I was kind of growing up in, in high school. And, and I think that I was very moved in a very, in a more hawkish direction, as were some other people, I would say roughly of my same age group, not, not all by any means, but um, by, the, by the confluence of several things. The first was 1989, which created this uh, sense that, that, um, that, that the possibilities for the spread of liberal democracy were much greater than than had appeared. It was this kind of anti-relativist moment. Um, you know, even in China, it looked like this is what people desperately wanted. Uh, and it not just wanted, but, but could achieve, right? Because Eastern Europe, you know, and then Africa too, which is the place that I followed, there was a wave of democratization uh, around the, in the early 90s. The second was the Gulf War. Um, and and all the a lot of the people that I had grown up looking up to as liberals in the New York Times op-ed page and Ted Kennedy, all these liberal icons, all basically said the Gulf War was going to be another Vietnam. And then it wasn't another Vietnam. I mean, in retrospect, my own views even of the Gulf War have, I think now I think about it, maybe perhaps not entirely the same way I did back then. But back then I thought, wait a second, all of this older generation sees everything through the lens of Vietnam. They're saying the Gulf War is Vietnam. It didn't turn out to be Vietnam. It seems the Kuwaitis are pretty happy that they don't have Saddam there anymore. And then Bosnia was even of a bigger influence. And you, you, know, you remember, because you were in the thick of it, Bosnia was a crusade for the New Republic. Um, and, and I saw people who had been uh, anti-war people come to the view, and of course, you know, Jews were particularly likely, although not only Jews, because of the legacy of the Holocaust that's happening in Europe, to say, actually, we've learned that American power, American power is a euphemism I'm trying to move, move away from. American military force, right? American violence can actually be the lesser of evils here. Um, um, and, and so I think that was a very, I was in college then, I, that was very crucial for my evolution. And I think what the, and then it was also coming to the New Republic where I was, you know, that was, again, that was TNR's politics. Um, and it was a place that I was deeply comfortable. I've come from Oxford where, frankly, it was much, you know, where being Jewish was much less comfortable. I'm not saying it was a hotbed of anti-Semitism by any means. It just wasn't the place where you, like, you could walk around saying, Hey, I'm Jewish. You know, let let me inter inter let me just interweave this into my entire life. That's not the way things worked. It was much more the tradition of whatever you are, you do that at home. You know, and then in the street, you're a you know universal person. You know, and I came to the New Republic, and I think I felt just very at home. Now, again, in retrospect, we could talk more of this too. I also think that as I think about my at homeness, then I think about it more now. Also, um, have been forced to reckon more to which that also had to do with my whiteness and my maleness in a publication where there were no black staffers and where women couldn't really get ahead very much. Um, um, but um, let alone 
goodness knows, Palestinians. Um, but I think that at that point, I, I essentially, and then Kosovo was a kind of a high point, you know, in 1999 of that evolution. And I think that primed me um, in some very, in retrospect, problematic ways to essentially take a next step on the rung, which was Iraq, especially, of course, after the trauma of 9-11, it was said, well, goodness knows if, if, if Milosevic was terrible, um, Saddam is even worse. And, um, and if America, you know, again, it was also, I think, a, a hubristic notion of, of what American, whether the American military could do. Um, and I also think, again, and this is, maybe we'll get back to this when we talk about what we like and don't like about the, the differences between this moment and that. I'm also very struck in retrospect by not only at TNR, but in general, how few Arab um, uh, and, and Muslim voices there were in the conversation before, in leading up to the Iraq war, at TNR and in general, which I think led, there were a lot of people who didn't know very much about the Middle East. Uh, maybe I was one of them, who maybe had certain images they took from Europe, Bosnia or Munich analogy, that they then brought to a place they didn't really know, with a lot of perhaps colonial or imperial notions that they were not fully conscious of, although the neocons in some ways tended to be more open about them than the liberal internationalists. And then Iraq happened. I mean, my book, which you mentioned, I apologize for Iraq, but it was still trying to find this fight, you know, find a liberal internationalist tradition. But, you know, Michael Kelly, who, you know, became editor of the Republic later, who I had worked for for a little while, died in that war. My uh, sister-in-law, who's a doctor in the army, was deployed to Iraq and had to leave her um, her very young daughter. And I just began to think, you know, fuck, I mean, here am I living this, you know, I'm just writing this stuff, you know, I'm not paying, I'm not suffering the consequences for this. I remember when I started seeing homeless veterans from Iraq too, uh, on the streets in Washington and New York. And I just, I, I actually got to a place where I thought, I, I can't write about foreign policy anymore because my template has completely crashed. And so basically I need a new way of making sense of the world, because otherwise I have no confidence in, in me being able to say anything about it. And I would say that was the beginning of a process that probably took me further than I would have expected at the time towards, you're totally right, now taking a much dimmer view of the entire Cold War project um, and of the whole project and, a, and of a kind of a Manichaean American exceptionalism in moralism in the way we think about foreign policy. But it was a, it was a, you know, as I'm sure, you know, as you know, these things happen in stages. Yeah. I think I'm just thinking through my own feelings about that. And I remember um, during the Bosnia question, the Balkan question, I was not entirely persuaded um, <laughs> by where <laughs> the new Republic was. I remember also <laughs> being squeamish about the Somali, Somalia intervention um, uh -huh, uh -huh. and having a, a sort of moment where I was like, well, what do we, what are we doing there? I mean, wh uh -huh, by uh -huh. what right do we land and, and attempt uh -huh, to uh -huh. solve a, a, a really impossible, intractable? And I sort of had to begin with a kind of slightly Tory realism streak to me uh -huh, uh -huh, that was, uh -huh. that was something I could return to in a way once uh -huh, uh -huh, my uh -huh. more idealistic feelings uh and you're absolutely right it, it was a it was a combination of uh eastern europe and the soviet union which fell in a uh -huh. way that every neoconservative predicted it would um and even even the nationalisms within the soviet union emerged just as old school historians insisted um and 
And then, of course, you're right, the Persian Gulf War and the success, pretty quick success, a few yeah. bombs, and suddenly yeah. we did prevent a possible nightmare in, 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 yeah. in, in Bosnia. Um, and the sense that the U.S. military was a sort of miracle machine right. that had been honed. Right. Right. However, you know, this experience had happened before in Vietnam. I mean, it, it's it's very similar. A lot of intellectuals mm -hmm. really believed in that. So it's not like we didn't have a warning. And when people mentioned Vietnam in the run-up right. to Iraq, of course, I had exactly yeah. that contemptuous feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, come on. Mm -hmm. You've said this a million yeah. times before. And right. in fact, right. as a as a Tory, I should have, I absolutely should have been more cognizant of culture in a country like Iraq. Um, I remember reading right. Bill Crystal and uh, Lawrence Kaplan's book, where uh -huh. they essentially said these sects are kind of passe. You look at look at Baghdad in the seventies. You know, it's an evolved right. society. They don't really care about right. these things. And I'm like, well. I should have remembered Northern Ireland. I should have remembered all sorts of things, but I got carried away. And for me, of course, the the sheer incompetence of the invasion, first of all, and the the lack of follow through, and then the adoption of obviously torture, was for me just uh, almost immediately uh, just horror. And and I think I sort of in some ways overreacted by attacking it very early and very passionately because I felt so ashamed and guilty and responsible in some, obviously, we're just individual, right? We don't, we don't really make right. a difference, but right. Uh, right. it made some difference. And as far as you did, it was for bad. And so that becomes, uh, but I haven't at the same time then decided that was all, all because I was white and male and, uh, and uh, it, it it was we'll get to that in a minute, but but yeah. but but uh, but I haven't now gone to rejecting the entire Cold War ethos. I think that there was some overkill in that, literally and figuratively. Mm. But mm. in general, I'm very very happy that that disgusting mm. empire disappeared. Um, I'm thrilled that Europe is no longer split in two, um, mm. and uh, and I think to some extent. Some of the hard-ass attitudes of Reagan and of the neocons helped, uh, as it were, heighten the contradictions to allow the Soviets to implode the moment that they did. And I, I do think it helped a little. You know, it's the kind of thing you're never going to be able to prove either which way. It's a matter of historical interpretation. But I'm not as right. I'm not. I don't think the Cold War was some massive failure or disaster. I I, I just don't. I think I. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what I would say is is, is this. I, I think it is, I'm happy that the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, uh, not every place that was formerly in the Soviet Union itself is more free. Many of those countries are, are you know, former Soviet republics are very authoritarian. But, um, but some places in the Soviet empire, uh, in Eastern Europe in particular, are clearly far more free than they were when they were under Soviet domination. Plus the fact that also countries have the right to fall, you know, to not be under the imperial control of a of a neighbor, which they were, um, and I also think I absolutely believe that it's 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 far better that Europe is, you know, is 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 united. We don't have a wall in the middle. I would say two things. I think first of all, and we can talk about it more. The Cold War looks very different when one moves outside of Europe, and when one looks at one looks at the global South. Um, uh, I think than when one uh, it's it looks most benign if one looks in Central Europe and and you know in the West. It looks worst. When, when you look, I think, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Latin America. Um, so that's one point. I think the second point is my, and I wrote about, this is also helpful, I wrote about this in my Icarus Center book, 
I'm of the view that, and this is the, you know, maybe somewhat revisionist view of, I think there are a number of scholars who would argue the point, that, that Reagan's greatest contribution to the, uh, to the liberation of Eastern Europe was his embrace of Gorbachev. Um, um, he actually began, and that was weirdly conditioned by the fact that Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist. Reagan was a very strange guy. In some ways, very unusual conservative. You know, he was believed in utopian notions of liberation, but and he was terrified by nuclear war, terrified by it, partly because of movies he'd seen. And so when Gorbachev fell along, he embraced Gorbachev. He was called a, a Neville Chamberlain, a, you know, accused of impeachment when he signed the INF Treaty uh, in 1987. He was denounced by the Republicans. But I think that that making America look less threatening, less menacing. Remember, because the Russians did have this history of this terror, right, that the U.S. and the Western Europe, U.S. and Germany were going to, you know, join up and, and invade, you know, and invade is happening over two. Once that threat receded because Reagan grabbed Gorbachev and embraced him and stopped talking evil empire, even though it was still obviously a horrible regime, I think that that gave Gorbachev the space to say, we can let Eastern Europe go. So it's partly that my, my, my take, again, it's others can disagree about how the Cold War ended that has partly led me to my belief that I can celebrate the end of the Cold War and also believe that actually in many ways the hostilities prolonged the subjugation of Eastern Europe. Or the hostilities made it so that Gorbachev really did have to emerge because the previous policy was failing and got an opportunity. And and both Thatcher and Reagan uh, I mean, Thatcher was the first one to go there and to see him and to say, mm-hmm. but she's different than, than uh, Reagan. We can do though. business with this guy. We can do business with this guy. But that is what she yes. meant. She I, she was horrified by the INF, by Reykjavik. She was horrified. I remember... Right. I, remember I think Reagan was right. Reagan turns out to be right. I, but I will point, I remember cover at the New Republic back in the day, which was like, so where are we? I mean, all the, all the hawkish... Uh, anti-Soviet Cold War liberals were horrified by Reagan at that point. Like, he's given the whole fucking game away. Uh, what happens yes. to deterrence? What happens to, we need nuclear weapons, blah, blah, blah. It was a huge panic, if you recall. Um, yes. Reagan yes. was correct. Like Dick Cheney, Charles, yeah. yeah. Uh, Reagan, right, right. But right. you're right, Reagan, a true conservative would have been much more skeptical about that as Thatcher yes. was. A true conservative would have been frightened by reuniting Germany again, as Thatcher was. If you can see her as a kind of conservative yes. uh, alternative. But she did recognize, and, and it was hard not to, that there was a, right. a more pragmatic approach coming from them. Uh, yes, and this is where I think Reagan, you know, you mentioned this point about uh, Lawrence Kaplan and Bill Christmas' book about Iraq, where they say culture doesn't matter. I think in a fascinating way, Reagan was the precursor to that move, because Reagan did believe that also that culture didn't matter. He basically constantly was always saying it, completely antithetical, antithetical to someone like Gene Kirkpatrick or, or Richard, you know, or, or, uh, or Richard Pipes, that the Russians were just like us, basically. Right. It's just they have this thin veneer of a terrible regime. Get rid of that and they'll just be just like Americans or Reagan's kind of happy utopian vision of what Americans were like. But Reagan was terrified of you. Reagan didn't support using a lot of military force because I think he was still within the shadow of Vietnam. He was too afraid to invade Panama. He wouldn't invade Panama. Bush did it. But Reagan was like, are you crazy? When Elliot Abrams said, we got to invade Panama in 88, Reagan was like, that's the scariest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. It's going to be another Vietnam. Although they did did go into Grenada. 
They well, right, they, right. That was the one thing, and then they gave more. They gave more medals than any per capita than any. Right, that was the genius of Reagan. Right, he recognized you needed a Potemkin war, right, against an army that had like two hundred and fifty soldiers to exorcise, like a movie like thing, to exorcise the Vietnam thing, but no actual real risk. And I think, but I think he created a kind of conservative, you could say, utopianism. Um, that I think then has much, much, has catastrophic effects, as you say, because there was a conservative critique of Iraq. It wasn't the same as the left critique. The left critique was maybe about more about international law, about the, look, this looks imperialism. The conservative critique was about culture, and yet it was the dog that did not bark. George Will didn't write that. I mean, all the people who knew that in their bones didn't write that in the run-up to the to the Iraq war. I know. I uh, include myself in that. And and it's hard to explain also the, the, the powerful effect psychologically of 9-11. Obviously, it was... Yes. I, I think yes. that our brains were were traumatized. Yeah. And it's it's, for me, a very clear example of, of how the human mind is, is incredibly susceptible to emotion and to passion and to yeah. feelings of violation uh, feelings yes. of revenge. Uh, right. Now we did our best not to give into those things, and I think Bush tried very hard. But then, when you mm -hmm. just see what they were doing to prisoners, and you could see right. what happens when people from the U.S. Armed Forces just sent into these places, uh, right. given impossible jobs. Let's let's not blame them in any way, but uh, nonetheless, right. not capable right. of doing it. Not capable of doing it. And I think that. For me, that was the ultimate uh, position. And I'm just interested yeah. because when we talk about culture and regimes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now we're looking at China. And yeah. so we do have a totalitarian regime, essentially. Uh, it's it's, it's the, the great bet that, mm -hmm. again, a great mistake, mm -hmm. although not everyone mm -hmm. at the New Republic made this mistake, but mm -hmm. plenty mm -hmm. of people did, saying that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that if we bring them into the WTO, if we foster the creation of a prosperous middle class, if we uh, uh, manage to integrate them into the world economy, then before too long, everything that we've seen happening in Eastern Europe and everything that's happening, you know, democratization, which was also happening elsewhere in Southeast Asia to some extent during that period, that'll happen too. And truth is, it hasn't happened, obviously. We pioneered uh, a sort of state capitalism uh, with severe political control and and you're you're now a big advocate of um well i won't use the a word but because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we're not going to go to that would be very 2003 it would be very 2003 <laughs> uh but we got to put that away yeah i know um, thank God, not everything is Munich. Uh, every three minutes, um, it did seem to be a sort of a constant. Um, there should have been a Godwin's law about bringing up Munich uh, because that was tedious. But I, you know, I am genuinely conflicted about this question. Yeah, I yeah. do think that the, the the embrace of of China had untold and unforeseen consequences for the American worker in ways uh -huh. that were. Uh, rather abstractly downplayed by a lot right. of us in the neoliberal elite who could make a good abstract argument about free trade and how it will make all of us better off. But it became almost non-falsifiable. And even uh -huh. though you could make an aggregate argument that we were better off, some people uh -huh. weren't. 
and the disparate yeah. impact of that on various groups in the society was a clear misjudgment on our on our yeah. part. Yeah. And secondly, yeah. this regime is 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 threatening threatening the climate. I mean, it's the most serious enemy of arresting climate change. Uh, it's also clearly at this point a genocidal regime that is putting um, a, an ethnic minority into camps uh, right. and treating them in simply ways that we haven't really seen. Talk about Bosnia. I mean, uh, this is uh -huh. these are these are concentration camps for people for hard labor and for re-education and all the rest of it. And the more stories we hear, the worse it seems. Uh, yeah. If that, if if a genocidal regime that is aggressing its neighbors and has a totalitarian structure, if that does not provoke a hawkish stance from the United States, what would? So I think it's, there's a lot there to maybe to disagree. Well, obviously, you take which yeah. part of that I you mean, want to and unpack yeah, it as you I will. Mean, I think it's certainly true that there were people in a kind of, um, uh, you know, in, in a uh, in a in a mechanistic way, uh, uh, who thought that um, you know um, free trade uh, was going to bring liberal democracy to um, uh, to China, and who believed that was going to be true about lots of parts of the world where it hasn't worked out that way. I think that I think the, the first question I would ask is. Are ordinary people, are ordinary Chinese people better off because China entered into the global economy that, or they would have if China, if it had remained Mao's China, right? Because this starts with Deng, right? So to me, and I, I take your, I think it's a totalitarian regime. I think what they're doing in Hong Kong is heartbreaking, tragic, hideous. Uh, I'm glad we have sanctions. I think what they're doing in Xinjiang is genocide. I agree. I think it's one of the great crimes of our time. I agree with all that. <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, I also think that if one is comparing China today to, to Mao's China, um, while China is not much more politically free than it was, um, it has seen maybe the most extraordinary alleviation of poverty in modern history. So that there are just vast, vast numbers of people who are living subsistence lives who are now approaching the middle class. I mean, that's part of the reason it's become such a danger on climate, right? Because if, you know, I mean, all of these kind of places where the IMF and World Bank was, I mean, China actually has done that economic. And I certainly do not want to suggest that I believe for a second that, you know, that money means that freedom doesn't matter. Of course, it, it doesn't. Freedom matters immensely, right? Um, but being able to not starve matters too. Right. Um, and in under Mao's China, you had neither. You had brutal totalitarian repression and starvation. Right. Now you have totalitarian rule um, and a vast middle class. So I think I so I think for Chinese people, it's been better, even though it hasn't worked out the way I would want or the way I hope it works out. For ordinary Americans, I, I agree. I think that there was at that point, again, a far too kind of simplistic notion. And I'm not an economist, you know, but the notion that basically, you know, this would, you know, uh, um, Lift all boats. What I, what, I, what I don't know enough to answer is, was the right European countries also open to China, right? But because they had much stronger social welfare systems, right? It, it didn't produce as savage a level of inequality in those countries as we did. So would it have been possible for to open to China, bring them into the WTO, and do things on the domestic front such that we would not have seen this economic devastation that we've seen in, in parts of industrial America, or was that impossible 
because of our political system or for various reasons. And the Bernie Sanders prognosis, which is basically we shouldn't have made those trade deals in the first place. I'm I don't really know enough, to be honest, to have a clear, like a really well thought out answer to that. But I definitely agree that the consequences have been very severe economically for a lot of Americans. Um, and in terms of where it brings us today, I think that, um, first of all, I start with the assumption that the two greatest threats that China poses to the United States are first, its contribution to climate, and secondly, its contribution to pandemics. Um, those are the ways in which they threaten us and maybe the whole world the most. And those can only be solved through cooperation. That's very different than the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, the Soviet Union probably threatened us most because of its nuclear weapons. But basically, th these are these for me are one and two on our agenda item. Now, when one, on, on Xinjiang and Hong Kong, I'm all for sanctions, but the reality is that our influence is limited. We're not going to go to war for those places. Just like we weren't able to save the the the, the you know the Hungarians and the Czechs when they rose up in '56 and '68, tragically, because we weren't willing to spill blood there. We're not willing to spill blood spill blood in Hong Kong, and and that's a hard. Well, what about what about realist. what about Taiwan, which is an even more uh, astonishingly difficult uh, challenge? And I presume what you're, the, I mean, to yeah. my mind, this yeah. the unspoken yeah. thing is that. Of course, yeah. we're not going to go into a global world war over Taiwan. Uh, and certainly it will be very hard to sustain a domestic constituency for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. can't see a future republic. I mean, maybe maybe Tom Cotton. Yeah, you could see a, a President Cotton or, or uh, uh -huh. but there are, or a President Liz Cheney and so on doing that. But so much of the party's not interested in that. I can't imagine the Democrats actually doing that. And yet we are formally committed to that. Well, we have some ambiguity, but there is, yeah. there is, there is. Yeah. So, so what yeah. are we going to do about that? I mean, yeah. you yeah. suggested we just so, let them, let it go. No, no, that haven't, that's not what I've suggested. I mean, uh, I, I don't think, certainly not in the wake of Hong Kong. I, I think that any illusions that anyone had about a one country, two systems model in Taiwan, in which Taiwan gets to maintain its autonomy under, I mean, I, I think that's absurd at this, after what we've seen in Hong Kong. So uh, I think that's, uh, to me, inarguable. To me, the question is, I mean, I agree, Taiwan is, a, um, to me, is the, is the greatest geopolitical problem in the world today. Um, uh, you know, I don't I put it, you know, climate and these are different, I wouldn't call them geopolitical. I guess, I, first of all, I want to say that one of the, you know, and we'll get to this later, but one of the reasons that I think you and I disagree about wokeness is that I think that one of the benefits of wokeness is it challenges American exceptionalism and allows us to not look at other countries from an assumed moral high ground. And one of the reasons I think that's valuable in on the China case is that it, it creates a climate where it's more likely to think about what the United States did when it emerged as a great power, right? And what we did famously in 1898 was once we had taken the entire continent, right, by killing the Native Americans and driving them into reservations, we then moved into, into, into the Caribbean and also into the Philippines, right? We, we, so so what, what the point I'm making is what China is wanting to do in Taiwan, and I, I hope to God they never get Taiwan, is not necessarily a representation of a particular Chinese pathology. That's the way rising empires work. That's what we did, right? And, 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 and you know, Puerto Rico, you know, Guam, Philippines, Cuba, they had never even been part of the United States, whereas Taiwan actually is a Chinese society. That said, I want to make very clear, I hope to God 
that, that, that the Chinese never take Taiwan. I think the problem is, since we can't defend Taiwan, I think we agree with this, I believe that the status quo position, which is that we don't formally recognize it, which is what the Chinese have repeatedly said, will drive them off the cliff. I believe that we try to maintain this gray status quo for, uh, because I think that's the safest and I think it's the best for the people of Taiwan. Now, th this assumes that the difference between this and the Cold War is that the Cold War uh -huh. was was driven by a totalitarian and universalizing ideology of communism. And, and Russian and, and traditional Russian national, you know, imperatives and both together intermixed. Yes, but America can live with, and I think could obviously live with a Russian exercising its traditional national interests. I mean, I, I, I honestly have some severe qualms about the West's approach to Russia after the Cold War. I think a little bit uh, more flexibility, a little less pushing them up against the edge of NATO would have been smarter because I remember having a, 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 an early fight with Marty about this. Um, for, uh -huh. for listeners, Marty Peretz was the owner uh -huh. of the New Republic. Um, because I remember once the Cold War was over, once the Soviets had collapsed, I was like, well, you know, the, Ru the Russians are a great power. They're going to want to have to, they, they're not going to surrender everything. And we should, we should, we shouldn't push them too too quickly because I, I'm a Tory. I, I, I kind of think Russia has, a, is, is, a, is a real power, always should be, always will be. And it's going to have interests in Eastern Europe. It's going to have interest towards Ukraine that, that, that if we have a zero tolerance toward, we're going to create more troubles than we're going to solve. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that seems to me to be what you're arguing really about China is, is that it's behaving as a regional hegemon, not as a global ideological uh, uh, yes, exporting absolutely. of revolution, et cetera, et cetera. It's a nationalist. Yes, it was it's very nationalist. Yes. It, it was exporting revolution under Mao, ironically. Right. But, but now I think, and this is where I think the neocons and the hawks are totally wrong. I don't think China's foreign policy is ideological. China often has, China will do business with whoever it wants. It doesn't actually favor authoritarian countries over democratic countries as a general rule. It wants you to not interfere in its behavior. It wants to re, again, the Chinese are obsessed with the notion that they were the victims of imperialism. It wants to restore the greatness of the Chinese empire, which includes areas they define as China, which is why Hong Kong, Taiwan is so central. And then they want to have a regional sphere of influence, right? Like the Russians did in Eastern Europe, like we have had in, in Latin America, like the Japanese tried to create in, uh, 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 in World War II, which is what led us to World War. It's what the Germans tried to, to create too. They're rising and, they're do they, and they want this sphere of influence. The problem is we're smack in the middle of their sphere of influence, right, as our allies. And this is, and this is what makes the confrontation so dangerous. But I think that one needs to I think seeing it in that comparative perspective, I think is is valuable in 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 uh, rather than exceptionalizing China in ways that I think lead to a hysteria that is dangerous. Partly because I think our power is declining, and so I think we have to actually we 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 can't write checks that we can't cash, which is just goes to your point to Taiwan. Yeah, which was what the British had to do in the wake of the Second World War. Uh, to... Yeah, they ate a hell of a lot of shit at America's, <laughs> you know, uh, because of the United States. <laughs> deleveraged. Um, sometimes deleveraging is is the only sane way to go forward if you, if you can see your limits. But in my mind. I don't know where workers come to this, but um, but but you you can have a realistic understanding of world powers having natural interests and natural 
desire to seek power without any invocation. I mean, you don't have to believe the United States is flawless to see it as a great power with, um, it's so funny because I remember, you know, I remember this is when I was at Oxford. I was, de I debated Casper uh -huh. Weinberger on this and I took the side. The argument was there's no moral difference between the foreign policies of the Soviet Union and the United States, which of course was a, mm. in 1983, which was then, God, we're so old, yeah. so yeah. bloody old. But anyway, it was a hot topic, if you remember. The whole no moral yeah, difference sure. question. Oh, moral difference, sure. moral difference, moral difference. Sure, sure. Took, Especially in Europe. I took the line that, no, in our foreign policies, in the pursuit of our national interests, we're identical. There's no moral, There's no. it's not more moral to defend the interests of America than the interests of Britain or the interests of Russia or the interests mm -hmm. of Japan. This is actually a realist position can, mm -hmm. doesn't have any problem with any of that. I want to... Uh, I want to just briefly go to South Africa, actually. I know that's strange, but, but because yeah, shit yeah. is really going down there, and I can't read a yeah, single story yeah. in any of the national press that explains to me. I read this fascinating yeah. uh, missive from R.W. Johnson, um, whom you must mm -hmm. know, the, the Maudlin Don, uh, who knows South Africa very well, and it was extremely yeah. alarming. This, it feels as if the country's yeah. coming undone, mass looting everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. It is very alarming. Can you, and, can you um, explain you know, to uh, us? Because you, what, sure. what is and happening? I, have, I mean, look. I, 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 although this, I, I, I've been following this a lot. You know, partly because I have still a lot of family there, and yeah. it's frightened me a lot. And um, but I, I don't want to claim a deep expertise. I mean, I haven't been in the country since 2014. I, I think that there. But from what I, from my non-expert eyes, I would say a few things. First of all, um, you have in the figure of Jacob Zuma, the former president a kind of a Trump-like figure, right? A kleptomaniac who was basically willing to, to burn the country down in, for, in order to stay, keep himself out of jail. Um, and who is, has a, a group of people, partly because, again, in the way that Trump has a kind of tribal allegiance among white Americans, he has a tribal allegiance, particularly in rural areas in, 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 in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, his home presence. Um, so that's part of it. And the government took this brave, but perhaps foolhardy decision to arrest him. Um, and, and so that's, that's one element. Maybe that was the trigger. And, and there just seemed to be partly an organized effort here. Again, we can think about the parallels in our country, basically just like, you know, um, if Trump were arrested. What, um, um, but, but then on top of that, you have, um, and this is where I think one has to look at the whole global order and South Africa's role in it. And we are all implicated. The fact that you have, you know, uh, COVID, you know, just, just uh, you know, very low vaccination rates, horrific, horrific numbers of, of, of dead from COVID. And also because they don't have any vaccines, they've had to do these lockdowns, you know, and in a developing world country, a lockdown is basically death for people. I mean, they can't, what they, you know, you can't go out, you can't work, you can starve, right? Plus a country that has not, you know, that really still has economic apartheid. You know, um, and it's very bittersweet because I think it's very funny. You know, one of the reasons that I think white South Africans gave up power was because once the Soviet Union fell and they realized that South Africa's economic policies were going to be dictated in large measure by the IMF and the World Bank and Washington, D.C., they saw, you know what, you know what they have in the U.S. where they have these multi-party elections, but white people still have the wealth. We could have that, too. And in a way. They succeeded because the ANC stopped being a communist party. Um, it had no, there were no benefactors. You couldn't be a communist party in the 1990s anymore, right? They were, they became a neoliberal party. 
And um, and so while it's meant that for for white South Africans, life has not changed that dramatically, it's meant that you have this vast, vast discontent. Maybe COVID and Zuma brought it to the surface, but it meant that the post-apartheid compact, which was basically political change without fundamental economic change, was a tinderbox uh, waiting to blow. And I, I, I pray to God that they can stop the violence and that leaders can create a new economic compact that's more just, but I don't think they can do it alone. Um, unless you have a, unless you have outside powers in the rich world that are actually willing to help to make that possible for through at least vaccines, for God's sakes, you know, I think it's very, very, it's very difficult. But don't you hold the South African government and uh, responsible for, I mean, it's been a, it hasn't been a white government for, for a very long time. Uh, and, 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 and when you say redistribution, I mean, why is there not the ability to generate wealth rather than actually just redistribute it? Well, I, I think so. Look, it's been a um, uh, it's been a neoliberal, you know, um, a surprisingly neoliberal black government. I think that you know, generating wealth is very difficult. There are not a ton of countries that have started out poor and really made it into the middle class. That's part of the reason China. You know, you look at you, you know, look mostly East Asia. You look, look at Southeast Asia, China. East, right. In Southeast Asia, you've seen in South Korea. Now, I think, first of all, there you have the benefits of the regional benefits, right? Once Japan first came along, Japan started investing a lot, right? So that was one thing. I think you had regional knock-on effect of basically being in a rich region where each of the richer countries were investing a lot in the poorer countries. That's one. Secondly, again, I'm not an expert, but I know in South Korea, you had a heck of a lot of land reform. You had a lot of land reform, I think, partly. Uh, um, and so that's what they haven't had in South Africa. So that that also creates the, you also have high literacy rates and low unionization rates. So you have, and you have the protection of the Americans. What is, the Americans don't want these countries to fall to communism. So we keep our markets open to them, even as they protect their markets, right? And then they build these Samsungs and whatever, and they export to well, us. What was felt in South these, Africa doing that? South Africa or any African country. Have, I mean, for example, if you look at the look at Chinese investment, it's over. It's 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 enormous investment in right. Africa. Right, and there actually, I mean, there is some growth. Right, there is some economic growth in in in, in Africa, partly because, ironically, of, of of Chinese who are building a lot of infrastructure, although it also comes with its own problems. But South Africa doesn't. Again, it's not in a rich region where it has all this potential. Uh, uh, regional investment. It doesn't have the, the fortunate trade policies that I think that the East Asian countries had. It didn't have the land reform. And this is where I think the, uh, you know, the policies were arguably too neoliberal. It doesn't have as high literacy rates and it has high unionization rates. So you have a country that's not that economically productive with a fairly high, you know, if you compare them, they're going to compete with, I don't know, the Malaysia or Indonesia or some country like that. You've got higher labor rates and lower productivity rates. So but a lot of countries in the in the in the global south have basically been caught in this trap. I think the East Asian countries, in some ways, have been the exception, the positive exception. So, I, again, the Southern government has made mis you know Zuma was a terrible, terrible leader, um, uh, uh, certainly, and there's a lot of corruption. There was also a lot of corruption under apartheid. It's just that that corruption benefited the Afrikaners, as opposed to this benefiting a black elite. But I tend to think that the problems are more structural. Um, and I'm not sure that even, I don't necessarily know Ramaphosa is such a bad leader. I'm not, I think that they, it's very, very difficult hand they've been given, they've been given to play. Let's, um, cause we've been, we've been chatting quite animatedly yeah. and, and happily for a while. Yeah. Uh, 
And I don't know what to say about Israel, really, except at some point I realized, uh, because we've had a similar trajectory on this, uh, that the Israeli government of any kind was never really committed to a two-state solution. I think it was bullshit almost all the way down. And I think in reality also my main anger about liberal internationalists and liberal Zionists about this was that I think it was mm-hmm. all the way down for them too, but they lied about it. Mm-hmm. And and I the reason I came to that rather sad conclusion is because mm-hmm. at any point where we might actually have been able to put some pressure, we might actually have been able to move things hard, we balked every single time. Mm-hmm. And there was no pressure from liberal Zionists on either Democratic or Republican administrations to to push the Israelis to make concessions. And, and, and so now it's too late. It's obviously too late. Uh, there's uh-huh. no way uh-huh. we're going to have a two-state solution. It's been created to avoid that. Uh, mm-hmm. I also honestly can't see your solution or some one-nation mm-hmm. solution mm-hmm. operating. So uh, mm-hmm. to some extent, Zionism has failed. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. a, how would you respond to that? I mean, it depends on what one thinks the goals of Zionism were, right? I mean, in some ways, right? I mean, well, some if, Jabotinsky's uh, Zionism has succeeded. Yeah, I, I mean, look, if you take a the darker view that you're taking, and I, uh, it's not a, I agree it's not a, a lot it's of not it. a, a view I want right. to take. It's not a view that no, I right. used to take. I have been forced right, right. by observing reality, right. and then, and yeah. then during yeah. the Obama years, in particular, the contempt. Right with which the Israelis yes. treated the Americans is just shocking to me. It's as if, as if, as if, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I mean, I agree with that. I think that, look, if, if you, um, if you believe that the, the point of purpose of political Zionism, I would just cultural Zionism maybe was a different thing, but political Zionism was the idea of basically creating um, a, a state in which Jews would be politically supreme um, and therefore uh, safe and uh, would allow a certain kind of Jewish self-expression that's possible in a majority society, Jewish society in this particular uh, you know, land that Jews have you know, always looked to, then Zionism has for the moment uh, succeeded. Um, um, but whether, you know, but for at the cost of, um, uh, you know, of crushing Palestinians, um, you know, the UN says that Gaza is uninhabitable for human beings, you know, um, um, uh, 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 of a, just a horrific uh, uh, cost for Palestinians. And I think that um, the, um, I, 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 were, I think it's, you know, I, I think that it may possibly, and one of the reasons that I think that it's impossible to forget that, that Israelis are not reconsidering um, is that things are, have worked out too well for them at this point. Right. I mean, South Africa, to go to that analogy, why South Africans didn't reconsider because they woke up one day and thought, you know, we feel really bad about this. Right. It was basically the country was up in flames in, in, uh, in, in the 80s and the government realized it had didn't have the capacity to put that revolt down. It also had it nowhere near continue. the demographic balance that Israel has. I mean, the, the whites in South Africa were 
What percentage of the population were, were they? Uh, are they were smaller, right? And they didn't have the international support, uh, both political, and they also weren't the economic magnet that Israel had. Israel has economically and technologically a lot of things a lot of countries want. Um, so it's very hard to isolate economically. I think that we're we're probably headed for a long period of what I would guess would be the, a status quo, but perhaps a more a more 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 one with more open. Ep- open episodes of violence, because one of the reasons that things have been calm for Israeli Jews is there's been a kind of indirect, you know, to use a British colonial term, indirect rule in the West Bank, uh, um, which is to say the Palestinian Authority has basically served as Israel's subcontractor. And so it means that the Israeli 18-year-olds don't have to patrol every Palestinian village and town, makes the cost of that control lower. I do think that probably one point, but sooner or later, the PA, which has lost all its legitimacy, um, will collapse. Palestinians rely on it for jobs, but they didn't sign up to be the, the sub, to, to manage their own oppression. And once that collapses, then Israel faces a more difficult choice because um, it, it, it needs to, it wants to maintain control at low cost. Right. Um, and uh, direct control is much more costly. That's the reason Oslo came about in the first place in large measure. The first intifada showed Israelis that the cost of direct control when the Palestinians were in revolt was too high. I think when the Palestinian Authority collapses, maybe the, some new debates can emerge. Um, I, I think that um, a, to me, a bi- an equal binational state is the worst option except for all the other options, given that the other options the main other option we have right now is what you know Bezalem is called apartheid, you know, which I think is ultimately, first of all, just not just not morally totally unacceptable. But I also believe in the long run that the that when you subject another weaker people to remorseless violence, that sooner or later the violence comes back to you. Um, I, I and 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 I and I fear that as well, and that's why I believe that ultimately a, a, an equal state will be a problematic and difficult place to manage, but I think a better place. What about the obvious option, alternative to that, which is a yeah. rather rather euphemistically called population transfer? In other words, to do to the Arabs yeah. of the West Bank what happened to many of the Arabs in Israel proper uh, in 1948 right. and, and thereafter. And, and one can imagine yeah. a conflagration yeah. coming about where which prompts a very right-wing nationalist government in in Jerusalem, and you could see uh, ethnic cleansing, as it were, as a as a as a, a as a last resort. What what is what? Absolutely. I've been I've I've to be honest with you. I yeah. think that I've, yeah. I over the last ten years I've regarded that as yeah. almost inevitable. And I, I think it's yes, it's totally possible. First of all, at a at a lower level, at a smaller scale, that that expo- those expulsions do happen. We you know we've been paying a little bit of attention now in Sheikh Jarrah, but. Continually, there was another. There was a big expulsion in '67. There are Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, lower, smaller numbers, who, who on an ongoing basis have their homes demolished, or if they leave for a certain period of time, they're not allowed in. There is this kind of slow process of doing that. And you're right. This is how Israel was created in 1948. And one of the things that we've, you know, learned in the United States, I think, with the Trump era, is that things that are in the deep marrow of our history uh, uh, can return in, you know, somewhat different guys. And I think that, you know, it's interesting, you know, there was that whole joke about how basically white liberals never thought Trump Trump could get elected, but black Americans thought it was entirely plausible that he could get elected. You know, similarly, if you ask most Israeli Jews I know, you know, could there be another Nakba, they'll say, no, what kind of slander is this? You ask Palestinians, they say, yes, and, right, tell me something I don't know, right? Um, So I think that's absolutely the case. And, and, And in fact, if you look at polling, 
you can get a third to 40% of Israelis, maybe even 50% of Israeli Jews to say that they would support, you know, at least voluntary, if not coercive movement of Palestinians. And there've been all manner of Israelis who've said that. So yes, I think that um, uh, that is a, a, a real genuine possibility. And it's understanding that history and that possibility is crucial to understanding the Palestinian uprising that took place in May, because it was that specter raised by what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah that I think was part of the reason that it was it was so potent for Palestine. And in such a circumstance, are there any any ways in which the United States would punish Israel for that? I can't imagine. I mean, I, I think we're still... A, what's interesting is that there's been a shift, I think, in the popular culture. I mean, at least I perceive a shift in the popular culture and some shift in some, some degree, a shift in the media, but it hasn't penetrated Washington very much. Um, not even the Democrats in Washington. I mean, you know, the squad gets a lot of attention. Uh, and to me, they are, you know, they're the, the only, they're the very small number of members of Congress who are right on this issue, you know, uh, but, um, but they're a tiny minority. And I don't know necessarily that the shift we're seeing culturally will change American politics. I mean, there's no gun control, despite the fact that most Americans have wanted gun control. I mean, our political system can remain pretty hermetically sealed in various ways when you have, um, strong entrenched interests. And the, the people who are to the left on Israel-Palestine, for most of them, it's not they're going to be their number one or two or three voting issue, right? So politicians could perhaps ignore those views, even if they're out of step, because it's a distant issue that people, you know, so that's my pessimistic analysis, but I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong too. I hope I'm wrong. I think, <laughs> but I'm not coming to this from any, any, psychological conclusion except just math yeah. and a sort of yeah. realistic view of if you want a Jewish state and this is where you've ended up, I don't see how you rescue where you are without something quite dramatic like that. And I don't think a binational state is is possible. I I I I, I just I just can't grapple with that. But let me ask you a deeper question, which is yeah. does that imply that it was a mistake from the get-go? That when 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 we're talking about let let's let's I mean it's it's yeah, it's right. there it's we're not it's not going to disappear but there is right. a, it's a yeah. it's a thought experiment merely a thought experiment that sure, that sure. If, if I look at my own conservative realism right. that I've tried right. to that, that I'm dropped right. during Iraq War and I I saw and I understood the possibility that you can't simply create overnight a new uh, entity with a totally different religious ethnic basis in the middle of a country that's already there, uh, yeah. without extraordinarily, you know, and this is what Truman was obviously very concerned yeah. with before he he was kind of rushed into it. Um, is it, have you have you gotten to that point? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the the people that I, I mean, yes, I mean the, the people that I. I would say I look to today as the people who uh, I think about the tradition that I associate with, and I wrote about this in this piece I wrote last year called Yavana, which was about Wednesday, are people like Martin Buber, Judah Magnus, uh, at various points, Henry, uh, Hannah Arendt, Henrietta Schultz. And they, were, they, were, they considered themselves cultural Zionists, but they believed in a binational state. They didn't believe in a Jewish state. So what they saw when partition was coming along Many of them testified to the UN against partition um, um, uh, because what they saw, I think, rightly would happen was the Nakba. Remember, in 1948, 
Jews were only a third of the population. Um, and they only lived on about 7% of the land, um, which means that in that partition plan, which was going to create a Jewish state and 55% of the land, if you just do the math, the Jewish state was almost 50% Arab, 40 and 50% Arab. They understood, as Ben-Gurion understood, that this was not going to be the map, that, that what was going to happen was that fighting was going to break out and this would be used uh, to basically move large numbers of Palestinians out to create a state with a large Jewish majority, which you couldn't do just because of the number of Palestinians who were there unless you moved a lot of them out. It also helped that there were more Jews who came in later on in the 40s and the early 50s, particularly from, from the Middle Eastern countries. But so they saw this coming and they said, no, the goal should be a binational state and we need a process of some kind of you know, you know, tutorialship basically to gradually move us towards independence as one binational state. Now, they were a small minority then. It remains a small minority view today, but I think they were right. Um, uh, and, and so that's the tradition that I associate myself with. Huh. But surely, given all the facts that have happened since, it's, 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 it's a much uh -huh. difficult, more difficult proposition now than then, obviously. Massively so. It, it, it is. It is. There are, I mean, there are what, know, as, you, uh, as it, they put it, facts on the ground that, that have. I mean, the settlements in particular are just. Uh, I, I I don't know how you get around the settlements. I mean, yes. I mean, look. In some ways, the settlements are an enormous problem for two states uh, because they envision those settlers, most of the settlers leaving. Um, there, in a, in a, there are some settlers. Um, not all, but some settlers who, who are more open to the idea of one equal state um, because it means they could stay living in the West Bank, right? They, they don't have to not live in the West Bank, but they have to give up the privileges of living in a Jewish supremacist state, which is not a small thing, especially because many of them live on stolen land. Um, so um, it, it's not a simple process. But there, I do take, again, shreds of hope from the transitions of some really actually a couple of really remarkable settler rabbis who, after breaking out of their cocoon and actually having some interactions with the Palestinians living nearby them, living in these horrific circumstances, came to the recognition that what was what they were involved in was morally wrong, but kept their devotion to being I mean, the, the challenge for Israel. And some the, the point that religious Zionists have always made correctly is that the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria is more biblically significant than the land inside the Milan. Right. You know, your, yes. you know your, your Old Testament, right? The Philistines were on the coast. The, the, Judea, the Jewish kingdoms were in the inland. So you, this cities like you know uh, Bethlehem and Hebron and what the Jews called Shem, there are some people who are more willing to essentially part with Jewish statehood than they are with than they are to part with living in those territories, and I I think that they could be part of a solution. Huh, interesting. You know, Peter, you've you know, I, your name comes up every now and again, mm. casual conversation, and and man, these people have strong opinions. I feel mm. I feel it's almost as bad as me at this point that that you've mm. you've become terribly polarizing among mm. Jewish Americans, um, mm. and. This, of course, is in a long line of 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 of, of public intellectuals who are uh, uh, are at some point thrown out of their own tribe or their own house. How how hard has that been? Um, I mean, I've, I've, people have said you're an opportunist that you just sort of pivoted on a dime that you, you you're just going where the winds are that uh, all that stuff. What happened to you, Peter? 
Um, and how, yeah. and, and is it, has it, effect, I mean, obviously you have your own friends and you have a wonderful family and you, you uh, but has it, has it, has it really hurt your life? Uh, this, this, this turnaround, this apostasy in a way? Um, no, not, not very much. I mean, I, I think that I have um, enormous privileges and buffers from any consequences. I mean, you know, uh, first of all, I live in the United States, you know, um, I am, you know, uh, I have all kinds of, again, I, you know, this, I, you know, I'm a white man who has all kinds of, you know, I, again, I, and I say this not just as a kind of a rhetorical trope, because I see, I know, I see what happens to Palestinians, you know, um, uh, and I, I see what they go through when they say things that are not different than me. I think that, you know, maybe there's an analogy with some of the issues that you've faced, you know, and you and you faced, I remember, you know, even decades ago in the, you know, being a gay man, you know, someone who lives in a community, but has been critical of that community in various ways at various points. And I think that one of the things that I, that I really felt like I wanted to make, try to make sure of when I started writing more critically, and a lot of that really came from spending time on the ground in the West Bank. I mean, I think Maybe the legacy of being South African had an impact too on the way I saw things, but I think it was just going there again and again probably was the single biggest factor and spending more and more time in proximity with Palestinians. Um, um, but I think I, I kind of thought, well, there are a lot of Jewish critics of Israel who live at a, a distance from the from the Jewish community, or at least the kind of quote unquote mainstream or more religious Jewish community. And that's fine for them. I mean, people should live however they want. But I felt like for me, that would be a disaster. Um, you know, my I, 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 you know, and so I felt like I need to figure out a way of living inside this community um, uh, and even the more orthodox parts of it and still having my politics. And, um, you know, that can be it, it's an interesting because it's not just an intellectual challenge. It's also an emotional challenge. So uh, or an interpersonal challenge. So I've had to learn things, I think. I get it wrong a lot, but I've had to learn things about how to try to interact with people. And now I'm teaching to teach my kids too about how to real figure out when to argue and when not to argue. What are the right environments in which to have the argument and what are the right environments just to, to let people say their piece and let it be? And also, I think that one of the things I've tried to really emphasize, I try to emphasize in my own life and I try to emphasize with them is to place Judaism at the front and center. And, and, and make that as thick as possible. Because what's happened is, you know, in, in, the, in a lot of parts of the American Jewish community, Israel has become in some ways the substitute. Um, and so it seems to me um, when people share experiences of joy and fascination with Judaism, it allows, I, I feel, at least in the better moments, for me to feel a, a deep connection with people and solidarity with people um, around things that are not about Israel and that transcend and in some ways are much deeper and older than that. And so I think I've tried to kind of invest in those things, whether it's in, you know, studying Talmud or, 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 or leading services at, at our Orthodox synagogue or whatever with my kids, invest in that. And, and I'm also lucky that I think I live in a community on the Upper West Side where there are a lot of people for whom those questions of Judaism and Jewish life and Jewish practice and Jewish text are so important to them that they're willing to put aside the Israel things, even if they disagree. Um, and so I think that's what's made it workable. It's a bit like the attempt to uh, live as a Christian, recognizing that the, what many, certainly I would say many evangelical Christians, and to some extent some very orthodox Catholics, have politicized uh, in, in a right. sense that it becomes 
it becomes about the culture rather than about God and your relationship to God and your relationship to your fellow believers. And, uh, and I do think that's, that's, it's, it's, it's a way in which our polarization has also polarized our religions and in some ways taken away from them their, 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 their more spiritual and religious actual identity and integrity because we're turning them into political badges, uh, which, is, which is just awful. Um, I'm, I'm, yes. As a Catholic, you know, we're, we're very, very evenly divided, really. Uh, I, mm. I'm kind of, well, white Catholics yeah. are. Um, mm. I just, I honestly, genuinely had just no ability to understand how anybody who ever had any glancing acquaintance with Christianity or Catholicism could find a reason to support Donald Trump. I, I, it just felt to me it was it was not even a it wasn't a challenging case. It was an, a, a poor, extraordinary case. This man is actively <laughs> actively pagan, actively hostile to every single Christian value you could possibly cite, and yet so it showed that their it showed that their sense of cultural siege is so intense. That they felt they had to, I mean, without overdoing it, um, and that you know that politicization is what I've been struggling with the last twenty years myself in terms of Christianity, and and so you see something like on the question of homosexuality, you can have a yeah. rip roaring knockdown fight about it if you want to, but mm. at the same time, yeah. it's genuinely not something that I fought with with any of my fellow Catholics at any point really, except in the most. Mm. Uh, of course, I'm a very, you know, accommodationist. I'm, I, I, I'm not looking, I'm not looking to find bigots. Uh, I, I'm looking to find right. friends, and I think, mm -hmm. and I'm looking to find common ground as opposed to what, what differs. But for me, the, the core question is not political at all. The core question is existential and spiritual. And and, um, but I'm I'm struck by your your yeah. your devotion i mean you're more devout a jew than i am a catholic um yeah. and of course there are many many more ways to be devout as a jew than as a catholic i mean right i mean the problem you know for better or for worse judaism is you know tells you you know from the moment you wake up in a seven billion ways how to regulate your life in every tiny minutia for good and for ill i think that i want i think the challenge i find is that as with christianity I imagine there, there, there are a lot of people you know who want to say authentic judaism is X, Y, and Z, uh, uh, and, you know, in a right-wing version. And I think, to me, the danger is that people on the left in the Jewish community, and you can tell me whether this happens with Catholics too, want to make the reverse move and say, no, 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 authentic, you know, authentic, this authentic religion leads to this political. And I think that for me, that, and I do that sometimes too, and I always regret it, because the truth is that I think what makes religion interesting and challenging, any great religious tradition, is that it's it's fundamentally challenging and destabilizing to any political view. I mean, so, I mean, you know, Judaism has so many multivarious voices, some of which I find sublime, some of which I find horrifying, you know. Um, and so it seems to me like uh, I don't if I if I claim that it that, you know, that that authentic Judaism leads me to support any set of policies, I'm really reducing you know what makes it actually interesting and it's alienness and 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 complexity and so i think the left and the right do that it's why i don't like going to synagogues and hearing rabbis kind of generally get up and give and talk about the issues of the day and and sprinkle in a jewish text or two because i feel like that's just that's just a new york times op-ed column with a you know that's actually not really being true to the to tracking the tradition on its own terms you know which is in some ways radically alien to all of these debates you know how do you how do you look back on your times 
at the New Republic in that period. It was a, it was in so many ways a, an extraordinarily vibrant period for a magazine. And and you look today, and you, there aren't many magazines that have that energy or that were attracted that much attention outside of it. I have absolutely no regrets about it. I think it was an absolutely wonderful experience. However, drama there was, whatever tensions there were, uh, I don't. I feel privileged to have been there um, and to have learned so much from the people there. I don't want to sound cloying or whatever, yeah. even though obviously yeah. there were lots yeah. of fights and so on and so forth. Yeah. How do you how do you yeah. look back on that? I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the word you use was privilege, and I guess that's what I would say too. But in in both senses of the word, I mean, I was given enormous opportunities to to be around extremely talented journalists to write you know, a lot about what I was interested in to, to learn a lot, to have my stuff read. I mean, I was given an extraordinary privilege. Um, um, and everything, you know, in my career father has that's followed has been a product of that in many ways, you know, built on that foundation. And yet I think I have, you know, I have become more aware and, and have been forced to become more aware perhaps than I was willing to be at the time about the fact that that privilege was in an ecosystem where, again, we didn't have any black staffers, basically. Um, women, there were women uh, who worked there, but there was a very harsh and real kind of glass ceiling there, you know? And, and, uh, and you know, there were no women editors. And I think it was kind of, and, and, and well, there was hold on a minute, hold, hold, hold on a minute. That's, that's not, there were no women who were, yeah. There, the, 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 I mean, there was uh, no women who were most, top, I mean, chief editors. Well, chief. Oh, okay. But there were, there were, I mean, if, if you said that to yes. about, Dorothy Wickenden or Anne Holbert, they would, they who were critical to editing the magazine. Um, yes, I mean, no, they were they were immensely talented women journalists who were there, writers and editors, but they didn't have. I think there was a ceiling on what they could achieve. Again, I don't want to get into the interpersonal stuff, but there was because of the people who were at the top of the publication. And again, we also know there was rampant sexual harassment. Um, um, uh, uh, and and um, and you know, and there was um, and I think that. So I often ask myself, and I remember about this, you know, would I have been able to be as successful there if it were a more of a genuine meritocracy? You know, if it wasn't a place where being white and male and Jewish, I fit in precisely because so many other people didn't fit in, you know? And I think there was a study that, you know, let alone, you know, Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, I mean, like it was a very, and, and so we were, um, there were a lot of very talented people there, but there were also huge, lots of other very, very talented people who couldn't get through the door and who didn't have the opportunity to have their careers springboarded. And maybe that's partly why, because of the way I think about the history, that you and I are in somewhat different places today on some of these debates that we're in now, because I have a much, as much as I am grateful for the New Republic, I have a much dimmer view of what that world was like when I compare it to the world that we're in today, I think the world we're in today is a lot better. Uh, here's a question I would ask you. What's wrong yeah. with a single magazine having a distinctive culture? Um, I mean, if you think of American intellectual life in the post-war period, and you, you think of the extraordinary contributions that, 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 that American Jews made to that, and you think of the quality of that. I mean, if I felt that we had been publishing mediocrities it would be one thing, but the fact that the New Republic was publishing brilliant people and not just Jewish people either. I mean, there were plenty of, plenty of, plenty of the people right now who are uh, African American and cr critics of 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 the new uh, ideology, the successor ideology, 
uh, were part of the New Republic then um, and were contributing then. But what I don't understand is why every single institution has to somehow represent everything as a whole. And I, and I don't see that as somehow discriminate. Kind of, there's, there, anybody could start a magazine anywhere if they wanted to. Uh, why well, but, there, but power, 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 I mean, but it wasn't, look, if, if there had been, you know, if it had just been that the New Republic had a particular Jewish uh, kind of flair, cultural, like, like National View had a Catholic one, that would have been different. But where the United, New Republic might have been a little bit distinctive in that area, on the questions of race and gender, um, it was actually, we are, our distinctiveness, which was, you know, which was basically that, you know, there were very, very, very few people of color around and women were generally subordinate, was true in general. I mean, at that time, the New York Times had no black columnists. Maybe they had one woman columnist. So there were, this was a general reality. And I, I want to, and I think that it actually, although there were brilliant people at the New Republic who did tremendous work, I mean, I think certainly of your work, you know, like gay life, gay life, gay death. I mean, some of the stuff you wrote about, about, uh, you know, was, was extraordinary and shaped my, my thinking a lot. I think there was also a lot of mediocrity and it was mediocrity that was as a result of it being a closed system. And I think particularly about the writing about Iraq. You know, you mentioned, you know, I think a lot of our writing about about Iraq and the Middle East was mediocre um, and not only mediocre, but damaging, um, although we were not, you know, we were only one publication. And it was mediocre and damaging because we were not because we and and this was true of most publications. We were not a place where people who knew that region better, who came from that region, were actually given a platform. And that's why I think there was mediocrity, because there was ignorance. Uh well, that's we'd have to we'd have to fight over various essays yeah. and articles and, and writers in that. Yeah, but, uh, I don't want to talk about specific. I, I, people I do not remember. You know, I include some of my own writing. Yeah, go ahead. Well, yes, I mean, I just uh, I just don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm more of a believer that it was a fascinating magazine. It was a lively magazine. It was a popular magazine amongst its readers. I mean, that's all true. When I was there, it was over a hundred thousand people reading it and uh, getting it every week. Uh, and, and I think it was one of the most lively and fascinating and interesting magazines. It certainly was at the time. And, and, and isn't that enough? Why does one, no, why, does, I mean, why, why can't a magazine, what's the, what will be the problem with having an all female magazine? What What's the problem with having it, well, an all black magazine? Or, it's, it, they're power dynamics that mean that having an all black magazine versus having a white magazine, just like having an old Jewish publication in 19th century Germany versus having a publication without Jews in 19th century Germany are different because some groups basically, you know, have access to the wider culture and some don't. I agree that the New Republic was Everybody has access to the wider culture. Everyone can have. I mean, the the, wider culture is around us all the time. Just look, think about, again, I'm thinking, think about when during that period, how few um, you know, people of color and women there were in prominent, you know, or Arab or Muslim commentators there were, or Latino, you know, commentators there were in these prominent spaces. Very, very, very few. And so I don't think it's because there weren't smart people out there. I think it's because they didn't have access. And I think that a lot of the journalists today- Who prevented access? I think, I mean, look, I because, think these things are, people, it's a free because, country. Anyone can set up a magazine. It's not, it's Anybody not, can- yeah. Okay, but but we were owned. Publications are owned by particular people, 
And those people, when they think about who's the next smart young thing that they want to hire and promote, oftentimes will look to people consciously or not consciously or like them. You know, and again, I don't want to get into some personalities, but we both we know how that played but, out but in, mag- in that context. Yes, but magazine magazines have always been like that. They've always been groups of similar-minded people. With any luck, they have enough differences to make it interesting. But the whole point of a magazine is not that it's entirely representative of the broader world, is that it's representative of itself. And and I just I find the 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 attempt to push every institution into this homogenizing or the heterogenizing uh, mold is, is, is kind of just, first of all, it, it, it implies, it implies that one's politics or views stem primarily from your identity, which I don't believe. And it, it, it also implies that you can't have in a pluralistic society uh, institutions that are not necessarily representative of the broader population. I, look, I, I, I don't think every, I, I think you could have, all kinds of different publications doing different things and representing different perspectives. Um, but I think all of those publications are likely to be enriched and likely to be doing smarter, better work to the if they are drawing on the experience on a wider array of experiences, not because experiences are determinative, but because experiences are kind of what we draw upon in trying to make sense of the world. And so again, and especially when, you know, it's one thing if you're like, if there were a publication that um, only wrote about um, Catholic issues and they were only made up of Catholics, okay, so fine. But once they started to write about, they started to write a lot about Jews, right? And they started to have some influence in their writing about Jews. I may say, hmm, the fact that you have no Jews and you've published no Jews um, uh, makes me, wonder about uh, the uh, how good your analysis is going to be. Now, maybe I could be convinced if the analysis was really good. But I think when it comes to the New Republic's writing about the Middle East and about race, it wasn't always very good. And I think the fact that it wasn't very good in part because we didn't actually have enough people who had had a set of experiences that could have led them to challenge some of the things that people at the publication were saying, and that's that's where I where I would come down. And I think so when you when you look the, when you look at the op-ed yeah. pages of the New York Times and Washington Post today, which are which are yeah. basically organized around identity groups uh, and people, I mean, they weren't they weren't before when they were all white. Not not consciously, not ab- okay, as a matter of policy. Uh, Maybe but, well, but, I mean, okay, but no, but, but the end result. The end result was, I mean, the end no, result. No, I'm sorry. Intent matters. Uh, whatever you want to say, I, intent matters. Okay, and, I don't. And, I don't know. But I'm, do I'm, you I'm, honestly think that there is a wider range of interesting views in the New York, New York Times page now than 20 years ago? I think. Look, I think one has to. First of all, there there, there are columns in the New York Times who I like, and columns in the New York Times. No, who but I don't overall, like. just, but overall, I would say. Let's. I think one has to look they at different issue areas. But on the question the of writing about race, politics. They all on the, on have the, question the writing same about, politics. No, that's not. That's not. That's not true. It's true that they lean further left than they did before. But I think if <laughs> Who you leans leave, right. <laughs> uh, Brett Stevens leans right. Oh, come at the, on, it, it's, it's, it's the exception that proves on, the rule. Uh, okay, well, I mean, again, these are it seems that Wall Street Journal is a right-leaning publication. The New Republic, the, the, the no, New York Times, the left-leaning publication. Wait, let me finish. And the center of gravity, the center of gravity has moved further left than it was a couple of decades ago. But I think if I'm reading the New York Times, I think the writing about race on the op-ed page of the New York on the op-ed page of the New York Times is 
consistently better than it was. And it's better because they have people like Jamel Bowie, who I think is actually much more deeply read on the history of race in the United States than any of the people who were writing on those subjects when I was growing up or when I was at the New Republic. And, and I could and I could and I think that the, the fact that there is more space for black writers in elite publications, whether it's Jamel or whether it's Adam Serwer or, or, or a whole All range of whom people, have exactly the same that, politics. It's not that I think that you're reducing you're reducing them. What they do, what I think you're seeing is we have people who have a, who are doing a deeper read of American history than I think in general was being done 20 years ago because they're bringing uh, their own set of experiences, which were largely absent from these conversations. And I think it's meant for actually, I, again, there's always going to be good and bad stuff. But I think the, on balance, I think on that subject, the writing's a lot better. Um, I think the deeper read is entirely instrumental to advancing of, of extraordinary left-wing illiberal politics that is now mandatory. Um, there's no. I mean, illiberal. Was it liberal? Was it liberal? Was, was having all white editorial columnists liberal? Was that liberalism? Well, it, 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 irrelevant. I'm not saying. I'm just saying there were there were varieties of views uh, between those columnists. I mean, not not enough, I think, but nonetheless, there were in a way that there is not in any way at the New York Times now. Every single black writer has the same politics. Yeah, Every single one. I think there was actually also a tremendous amount of of unrecognized consensus. And it was partly the unrecognized consensus, which I think, again, was partly as a result of the exclusion, that you could have such a consensus among so many liberals and so many conservatives in support of the Iraq war, because neither of them were in touch with the experiences of people whose own experiences of a history of European imperialism in the Middle East might have led them to challenge that perspective. And there was a lot of centrist consensus that I think did a lot of damage. When I look at the debate right now about US intervention in Haiti, for instance. In West I think it's a much, in Haiti. Okay. In Haiti, just in the last couple of weeks. I think it's much better than it would have been two, 20 years ago. And the reason I think it's better is because I think editors and commissioners, when they think about it, they're much more likely to think, I should find some Haitian Americans to actually, or Haitians to write about this subject. And, and it makes the writing better informed. And it's more likely to bring in the history of America's history of intervention in Haiti, which is part of the reason that I think people are more skeptical about intervening. To me, that's a virtuous circle. Right. And if everyone ends up making the same arguments every day, uh, that's great. No, I, I don't. I don't agree with that, and I, I, I don't. I don't like the idea that that all people. I mean, I th again, I think that you are imagining there was more disagreement back then than there was, and I think you're minimizing the amount of agreement that that disagrees today. We have a particular part of the challenge we have. I mean, there are particular challenges we have in this particular moment, right? Which has to do with Trumpism, right? Which is to say that large chunks of the American right and the commentariat have basically moved into a open space of dictator worship, open revolt against, you know, against liberal democracy. And so it's hard to reflect those opinions on, you know, and I think that's part of the, what, what we wrestle, what we wrestle with. There are, but there are, there, and there, but there are conservative voices who I read and value who are not Trumpist, who I think, you know, whether it's Rahan Salam or David Frum or other people who I think, you know, are part of a, a valuable debate with people on the left. All right. Um, Certainly not at the New York Times, though. Um, again, I, was, I mean, look, Brett, all the arguments that you want to make against wokeism are being made by Brett, aren't they? 
<laughs> that no, not really, because it's, it's, he's, there's so much, so much more. There is so much more to say about American politics than is is right there. Um, there's there's he he first of all he barely writes at this point because he's under so much siege uh, from pressure uh, around him. Well, he is. Have you? I mean, could, I don't know. I don't could you imagine it. him right, working that, I, at that place? I mean, to be I, I, regularly I, I, despised, hazed, bullied, look, harassed. Uh, uh, okay, ask by your colleagues on a daily I mean, basis. Okay, look, I'm, I, I think that I, I'm. Yes, I think it can be difficult to be conservative at a hegemonically left publication. I also think that there, are, you know, I also know from firsthand experience from a lot of other journalists that it's not no day in the park to be Palestinian at these at, at, at publications like that either. So it's not it, it, the, the different kinds of exclusions operate. It's not only conservatives who have who face these challenges with exclusion. No, I'm James Bennett. I mean, for goodness, it's only it was only like three weeks ago that basically there were very few people of color in the, in high levels in the publications at all. Right? It's not like we're talking about something. This is very recent that that we've had even any significant numbers of people of color in these elite publications. I'm not. I think that's an. I think that's an exaggeration. But in, in, so okay, far as in so far as in so far as there's been a reaction to that, I think it has been kind of overwhelming in, in many ways, in which the identity of people is prized. Uh, as fundamentally as their abilities. I, I don't know. That's not the, when I, again when I when I look at the when I look at the people writing for the New York Times or the Atlantic or the publications that I think are, are high quality. I see people who I think are doing generally extremely good work. Okay. I mean, not uniformly. Some I like better than others. But do I think that the, uh, you know? I, I I think that actually a lot of it's a lot better than the, than some of the work that I remember. But do you think any of them has added to our understanding of perhaps the 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 conservative forces in the society? Uh, the, the, yeah, except, oh, absolutely. Except, except by caricaturing them as no, white supremacist, think, racist I bigots. I think. I mean, I mean that no, is the I, position. You, the position of people like Bowie and Sower is that all white Americans are bigots. I mean, it's, no, it's, I it's a crudest. That's, that's, I think that's a, that's a, no. That's look. That's just. I think that's a cartoonish. Um, what I see, um, at people like sorry, Adam they're white Sower supremacists. And, and they're not bigots. They're white supremacists. What, what I what I what I what I see what I see the people. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people. The move. A lot of people. A lot of what a lot of. Black writers in particular have done, whether it's Adam Sirwood, Jamal Bowie, or Tom Coates, is they have essentially gone back to the 19th century, um, especially the period after the Civil War, uh, and they've done a kind of a, a, a and you know, and I, the, you know, people I mentioned, J Jamal Bowie and Adam Sirwood, I think are extremely well read on 19th century American history, far far better than I am, um, uh, and and I think what they've done is they've looked in a lot of granular detail at the dynamics of how a backlash took place after the, you know, after, after the progress, you know, what Tennessee Coates calls book eight, we were eight years in power, taking from, I think, the South Carolina legislature. And I think looking at that historical prism, because I believe that there's a, because I think it's much more valuable, actually, way of understanding what's happening in America than taking what, you know, the Republican leaders in Congress are saying at face value. Uh, but the goal is to describe America in 2021 as indistinguishable from America of the 1870s. No, I think the goal. So why is did to they use the same to words to describe it? I think that I, I think that to me that what what appears to me as a reader is that the goal is to understand that uh, to challenge a kind of any simple notion of of kind of progress. Uh, to recognize that these things are deep in our history, and to recognize that um, there is no, uh, and, and to recognize that 
um, just because people say that they're not racist, um, that, that, that in a country where, where white supremacy is as deeply rooted as it is, uh, as it is in the United States, that there are deep patterns that re tend to reappear. And that if we look at the long history, we can see how history rhymes. To me, that's very valuable. It's not a question of history rhymes. It's history never changing that we live. Do you, let me ask you this question. Do you think it is fair to call the United States in 2021 a white supremacist state? Yes, I think it's also there are many other things you can say about America, too. Um, but I mean, I think the question is, are, do white people have economic supremacy in the United States? That seems on, the to be undeniable supremacy. that they do. Well, no, Asian Americans out earn white Americans at this point, for example. Okay. All right. Right. There's a, there's a, we have, we can, there are small number of Asian Americans. 86% of our immigrants are non-white. Sorry? 86% of our immigrants are non-white, which is a strange strange thing for a white supremacist country to be doing. No, I mean, look, again, to me, these, you know, this, 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 to me, it sounds a lot like people who basically said, you know, after Beth Salem said that Israel was Jewish supremacy, they said, well, look, there's a, there's a Palestinian Arab on the Supreme Court, you know? Uh, no, they're, they're Pal- you know, because we do not, are, we, do not we do not exclude people from the vote. We, we're not Israel. Well, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. We have a whole... Again, there are differences in the United States and Israel. I mean, we make Thank that clear. You. The United States is not, does not have the same. The America doesn't have the same foundational uh, statements of this being a state for white people in the way that uh, in the way that Israel's declaration of America's declaration of independence and Israel's declaration of independence are different in that way. Israel has no constitution, but we have a series of deeply anti-democratic institutions right, that are being used in a pretty, I think, aggressive set of ways to mean that Black people, uh, uh, in particular, cannot wield political power commensurate with their numbers, whether that's making it harder to vote uh, across the South. What a shock that this is just happening across the South, as it's possible that Black people can start to get elected senators again for the first time since Reconstruction. What a, what a surprise that now you have all these laws about voter fraud that make to make it harder, right? Whether it's the structure of the U.S. Senate, the filibuster, the Electoral College. These are not coincidences. And I think what people like Serwer and Bowie's work point to is us to recognize that they're not coincidences and they're not benign. Or to use misleading historic examples to crudely call what are... I don't, I don't see anything crude in their work. I really don't. Now, they're, obviously, they're going to be crude writers in, in, who have every political persuasion. But the people who I see writing at America's Best Publications on these, on these subjects, I don't think they're crude. I think they're very well, very historically informed. You, you think the... Sec- I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones' think- essay, think- essay on busing, for instance, is, is a very, very close read of the history and of the scholarship on busing. I teach it to my students. I think it's a terrific piece of, of, of journalism. Good God. Uh- Okay, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not just saying that to make you upset. I genuinely, I think it's one of the it, it, it's one of the it's one of the best pieces of historical opinion writing uh, on a, uh, that 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 I that I read. That's when I that's why I teach it. All right, um, we live under a white supremacy that will never end. <laughs> from from former well, liberal, of whether it will ever end. It's the point is that it's. Now, I don't think I think that's again tautology. It'll never end. I don't know if it'll never end. What I know is that it's it's pretty deeply entrenched. And that when there is progress, there's also powerful backlash. And I think that's what the late 19th century shows us. And that's the moment we're in today. We're in a moment where there was been some progress, undeniably. uh, And we're in the midst of a pretty potent backlash 
to, to basically take these very anti-democratic institutions and use them to make sure that in a country where there are more people who who are who are not white, that that those people can't actually wield political power. Well, that's obviously, that would be my analysis. They obviously can. That's why we have a <laughs> the presidency, Senate, and House uh, controlled by the Democrats. Um, that's why we elected a black president twice. Uh, and, and so on and well, so forth. I mean, the, the distortions like, to, turn, the to turn America in 2021 into America takes takes a certain amount of crudeness, one have to say. No, no. And the point is not to say that they're, they're the same, obviously. The point is to say that looking at a historical example can help us understand some of these dynamics, because when things are in the deep marrow of a society, they will tend to reoccur um, in every but society. When you and I think look, the Democrats... When you emphasize that exclusion of every other conceivable factor at work, uh, when you I'm... when you don't take into account any of the other extraordinary complex factors that shape American society in this twenty first century, when you I think when you when you don't okay, actually okay. regard anyone but white people as having agency in this society, which is also true, or power in the society, which is also untrue. This is the same thing with people with Palestinians. People always are saying, if you say that Israel is a Jewish supremacist state, that means Palestinians have no agency. This, to me, I think, Andrew, again, is, is a cartoonish uh, representation of the work that I read. Again, there's obviously going to be a good big spectrum. Some work will be better than others. But the work that I that I read that has influenced how I think about the Trump era, uh, again, is not work that suggests that black people have no agency. It's a suggestion, It's a, but, it, but it does suggest that the institutions of white Supremacy are resilient and can reinvent themselves uh, in the United States as they manifestly have in the Trump era. I mean, it's not like we're talking about we just went through President Romney. We went through Donald fucking Trump, for goodness sakes. And we now have a Republican Party that's basically almost as much as advertised that if someone gets elected on black and brown votes, they will see them as illegitimate and try to contest the election. Well, that's like, this a, is, that this is, is a, that is a particularly deal. a particular one dimensional un understanding of what what's happening in the Republican Party. We could talk, I mean, unfortunately, we should probably have an entire conversation on this particular subject. But the interpretation of what's happened in the last four years in America uh, is, has been exactly as crude as you are detailing. It has stripped out every other conceivable factor except white supremacy, which is, which is a way in which they can frame it to, to, to get the objectives that they want. Um, and... And that, I don't course, know who you mean by. I don't know who you mean by they. But again, that that doesn't that, that doesn't reflect reality as as, as I read people. Uh, I also see a lot of a discussion about factors like global capitalism, for instance. I don't feel like that's, well, I mean, that's ignored. Actually, there's more attention to that than there used to be. Uh, yes, but, the, but anyway, this is a longer conversation. But yeah, if if you are basically brought up in in neo-Marxism, you will have those other thoughts, along with race being the most fundamental. It is you. you do you believe that that, that that white supremacy is the foundation of all the systems in this country? I think it's one of them. Well, I do too. Yeah, but there are I mean, I think there others. Other, I think there are others. I mean, sure. I mean, there, there. You know, I mean, you know, there's also gender. There's also our economic system. There's also the 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 the, the legacy of the you know of the Enlightenment that we tried to put into place, although it was really only, again, at that point, really working for, you know, for people of a particular 
race and gender, but but there were ideals that were very important that then people could grab hold to when they tried to, to, to expand them to the entire population. So again, I think part of the problem is you're talking in really, really big generalities. I, I, I can't speak for every single person who has a quote unquote woke view or blah, blah, blah. But I'm t- when I talk about the people whose writing has influenced me, I don't recognize what I feel like is that character in their, well, character in their writing. I'm just grateful that you're, you're not conceding that all of America is simply uh, a foundationally white supremacist state and that every single thing in it can be attributed to that. That's, that for me, that's a gain. From this no, conversation. I, again, the people, I don't think that, all right. I mean, again, I, I, that seems, I feel like is a cartoonish view of what, of what, quote unquote, you know, of what, of what writers who are trying to understand this moment through, you know, whether it's Coates or Serwer, but I, that, I don't see them. That's, I see me a cartoonish kind of interpretation of what they're doing. Well, I, that my I think their interpretation is cartoonish in and of itself, but okay, we'll, we'll have well, to agree to disagree until we get them. down to specifics. Um, but yeah, um, well, uh, it's it's fascinating to see your your transformation, um, and it always fascinates me where you have to you 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 you. It's not just you shift on foreign policy; you shift on everything else as well, and that's always kind of fascinating to me. Um, that 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 you that it's not just a question of whether you think this certain foreign policies. You have to then take on all the other uh, shibboleths of a particular. I mean, not- well, I mean, again, chivalrous is a loaded word. I would say, I, I, look, there are a lot of subjects that I don't write about, right? If you were to ask, I, I don't write about healthcare and whether we should have us, you know, some kind of vision. So, so there are a lot of things that I that I don't write about because I don't feel like I have enough expertise to write about them. So I don't necessarily feel like I'm, you know, there are a lot of things where I stay away from them because I don't actually feel like I I have the answers. I may have certain broad instincts, uh, but that's not the same as having like very well thought out answers to this question. Okay. Well, Peter, thank you for talking. Thanks for sure. having I, en- I enjoyed it. Well, it's always fun to talk to you. I wish we'd sort of started more. We got kind of testy towards the end, which which we should have probably done in the beginning. But I I wanted to focus on foreign policy with you because that's 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 really where you have thought most deeply about mm-hmm. things in general. I'm religion for that matter. Anyway the buy not notebook is what it's called right on yes. substack another substack um refugee um well not really refugee um but substack pillar another one and um <laughs> and what else oh what was your what's the other thing you want me to plug oh jewish uh, currents jewish currents yeah people should check out jewish currents if they're interested in israel palestine stuff great thank you peter Talk to you soon. Sure, really enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. All right, take care. Bye. So, very excited for July and August. Um, among our guests will be Wesley Yang and Michael Lewis, two voices always worth listening to at great length. Been wonderful to catch up with with Peter Beiner after all these years. Well, not that many years. And we'll see you then. See you next week. <laughs>